Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. It's so good to be back to Calvary thanks to Pastor Brett and to Amy for inviting me. Uh, we planned this a year ago, but again, it's not always how we plan it, but we agree that God is in control. Um, I'm very grateful for the music ministry at Calvary. Uh, to see the children and the instrumentalists and the choir, uh, it is really a, a heavenly endeavor. I hope you know how good you have it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> uh, it's been uh, it really been indeed a heavenly experience, and I'm doubly uh, heavenly because I just took some Robitussin DM, <laughs> and uh, M. You know, Paul said he went to the third heaven. We'll see how far I can get today. But uh, it's really good to be with you. And, uh, and I'm, uh, again, I'm happy about just the Calvary Bible Church, my dear brothers and sisters, that I get to see you. And I see how God is using you. And the fact that you focus on uh, global ministry is also very important. Um, I've had the privilege of preaching... Um, in America, in uh, Canada, in Peru, in uh, South Korea, in India, um, in Romania, uh, in other parts. And what's beautiful is that everywhere you go, you have brothers and sisters, uh, the, f the big family of God. And uh, sometimes you have to go, sometimes they come to you. Even at Grace College now we have uh, people from uh, all types of nations. I think we have over 20 countries represented for such a, a small college like us. It's a, it's a blessing. And some come and are not believers, actually. They come to play sports. or uh, So we treat the classroom as a mission field. And some become believers while at grace. Some some don't. But we get to, uh, to share the gospel uh, with them. This morning... What I want us to do is to learn some lessons from Paul's missionary journeys. Paul once said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And why would Paul say that? Well, if you think about it, Paul was one of the most prolific missionaries, church planters and theologians of all time. So it makes sense that we follow his example. And he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So when I thought about it, I asked myself this question, did Paul obey Christ's command? And the greatest command that Christ gave was at the end of Matthew 28, when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So we have to ask ourselves, did Paul believe the command of God? Did, God, did, did Paul follow the command of Christ to go? And the answer is yes. And in the book of Acts, we have recorded these three missionary journeys of Paul, where he actually uh, went. 
in the first one, he, uh, he went, uh, again, he left uh, Israel, and then he went to Cyprus, and then he went to present-day Turkey. We call that Asia Minor. So in his first uh, missionary journey, by the way, which is recorded in Acts chapter 13 uh, through 16, we see that Paul goes. In his second missionary journey, he goes again. Uh, this is recorded in Acts 16 through 18. This time, he goes back to present-day Turkey, so Asia Minor, but then he goes to present-day Greece, present-day Macedonia, so he makes it all the way to uh, Europe. So we have to ask ourselves, did Paul obey God's command, Christ's command to go? Did he? Yeah, he did. Uh, in his third missionary journey, what he does, he visits a lot of the churches that he planted in the first two missionary journeys. So he goes to encourage uh, the churches that are already established. Well, again, this is recorded in Acts 18 through 20. But <clears throat> again, we read the Bible very quickly. All this happens over basically thousands of miles. He travels thousands of miles, uh, sometimes through dangerous terrain. Uh, as, we, as I'll show later, he goes through a lot of persecution. Sometimes he's shipwrecked. I mean, this is not, you know, he doesn't just get on an airplane and go from here to there. Uh, these, these, it takes years. Uh, basically, his life is just a life of, of missions. He obeys God's command to go. So did Paul obey the command to go? What about did he obey God's command to make disciples? Because the main verb in the Great Commission is not go. For those of you Greek scholars, you know that go is a participle. While you go, the main verb is make disciples. In other words, some of us go abroad, some of us, the nations come to us. But our ministry is still to make disciples. All our ministries to make disciples, and it starts in our home. Uh, my first disciples are my children. If you have children, your first disciples are your children. If you have grandchildren, those, that's your ministry. Your ministry starts in your family. It makes no sense that you're nicer to the people across the street than you are nicer to your people inside of your house. That should never be, because you are first starting at home. Your children and your grandchildren are your first ministry. So. Let's look at how Paul obeyed the Great Commission to make disciples. And I'm just going to give you two, two examples in Timothy and Titus. In his first missionary journey, Paul meets Timothy and takes him as his travel companion. And then he invests in him. That's what you do when you have a disciple. You invest in that disciple. So in 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul writes, That is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways of Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul calls Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And later, he'll write two letters to him that we know as Paul's epistle to Timothy, where he's basically teaching him what it means to be a pastor. Why? Because Timothy didn't get to go to Grace Theological Seminary to get an education. So what, how do you know to be a pastor? Well, Paul is writing to him how to be a pastor. Same thing, same thing happens to Titus. How did Titus know? <clears throat> Imagine that Titus becomes a believer at the proclamation of Paul's ministry, and then Paul says, hey, by the way, you're going to be a pastor of the church in Crete. 
What does that mean? So we have the, the letter that we know Paul's epistle to Titus, where he basically teaches him what it means to be a pastor. And one of the first things he says, look, the first thing is I want you, the first thing I want you to do in verse 5 is, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. They had churches who didn't have elders. Can you imagine a church without leadership? How is that working? So Paul is telling Titus, this is how you do church. And then he tells him in chapter 2, you have to teach what accords to sound doctrine. There's all these false doctrines out there, all these false teaching. You need to teach what accords to sound doctrine. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he gives them the gospel message. He says, whatever you do, you've got to preach the gospel message, which has to do with Jesus Christ and what he has done. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What Paul is saying to Titus, look, Titus, you have to put things in order in the church, but then you have to teach the Christians to be zealous for good works. That this thing is so important that he mentions it in chapter 1, he mentions it in chapter 2, he mentions it in chapter 3. The Christians should be the first ones when it comes to doing good things, good works. We shouldn't always be, oh, let's, let's us, let us do this. Why are we always the last ones? The Bible says we need to be the first ones. So let me ask you, did Paul obey the Great Commission and make disciples? If we are to follow Paul as Paul followed Christ, then we also have to make disciples. Um, that's our calling. Whether we go abroad or whether we stay home, we are still disciple makers. And when we are making disciples, we need to learn from Paul that sometimes we need to <clears throat> go. So he went to all the nations. He went to all the nations where God opened the door for him. So we just mentioned some, right? He meant Turkey, Greece, Cyprus, Macedonia, Italy. So he made it to Asia. He made it to Europe. But sometimes he wants to go somewhere and God says what? No. Can God speak to you through closed doors? Yeah, he does. Sometimes he should close doors. Sometimes he speaks through open doors. And that's what Paul says. God closed the door. I wanted to do a good thing. But God said, don't go there. I want you to go there. So sometimes we need to pray and say, God, open the doors for me. Where do you want me to go? Speak to me to close doors and open doors. We know that the Bible says in Romans that God's calling and gifts are irrevocable. In other words, if God is giving you a calling and is giving you a gift to use, they're irrevocable. God is not playing games with you and says, oh, I'm going to give it to you, then I'm going to take it back. No, God doesn't operate like that. God's call and gifts are irrevocable. So if he gives you a call, he's going to open the door for you. But you have to pray. Uh, God, open the door for me. Close that door for me. Show me clearly where you want me to go. I've experienced this because I gave my life to Christ when I was 13 you know, while I was in Romania. And then... We came here when I was about 15 and a half. And that spring, I turned 16. And a man came to our church in Southern California, a Romanian Baptist church. And he said, communism in Romania will fall. This was three years before it fell. He said, communism in Romania will fall. Will you be ready to go back to your country and help it rebuild spiritually? And that's when I felt a call to the ministry. I said, that is my calling. 
to go back and help my country rebuild spiritually. So I knew I was going to go to to school, and I had to get a you know bachelor's, and uh, then go to seminary, get a PhD because I wanted to teach. But when I finished, I interviewed with missionary agencies. Actually, that's when I met Dwight Pogemiller for the first time. I thought I was going to go back to Romania with Greater Europe Mission. And you know what? God closed that door. I was in the Southern Baptist Convention, so I interviewed with the International Mission Board, and I said, I wanted to go back to Romania. And he said, no, we're not sending any more educators, any more theologians. If you want to be a church planter or a, a, a medical missionary, you can send you that. But that was not my call. So God closed that door, closed that door, and then he opened the door to Grace College. I've been there. This is my 19th year. But his call on my life was irrevocable. I'm still doing what he has called me to do. I still teach. So we need to pray for open doors and for closed doors. The God sometimes operates like that. But we have to do it and to have in mind all the nations. Uh, and again, you don't have to go abroad to uh, minister to the nations. All you have to do is go on the campus of Western Michigan University, and the nations are here. You, all you have to do is probably go to your neighbor across the street and speak. You probably have international neighbors in your uh, subdivision. If you don't, maybe it's time to move. <laughs> I don't know. Location, location, location. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, again, you have to ask yourself how that is. But did Paul obey the Great Commission to go? Did Paul obey the Great Commission to make disciples? Did Paul obey the, uh, make the, the command to make disciples of all nations? Yeah, he did. And we need to learn from him. The other thing we need to learn from him is that there's not one way to preach the gospel. Do not believe anybody, especially when these guys write books. There's only one way to preach the gospel. There's no such thing. Look in the Bible. Jesus preached one way. Paul preached another. Timothy did. Now, they preached the same message, but there are different methods. Never let anybody tell you there's only one way to preach. Never tell anybody that, never believe anybody that says there's only one way to sing. You know, we, I mean, this, this new song, Holy Forever, it's my favorite new song. I sing it uh, in the car especially, and sometimes I cry, sometimes I can't uh, just rejoice and enjoy, but can God use new songs? Yeah. Can God use old songs? Oh, yeah, there's a reason why we're still singing songs that were composed 200 years ago. There's something about that. But don't let anybody tell you there's only one way to sing. And there's not only one way to preach. Use different methods. Look, look at Paul. Paul's MO, this was what he was. When he got to, into a city, the first thing he, need, he did was to go to the synagogue. Why? Because that's where the people were gathered to preach about what was in the Old Testament. In Acts 17, Paul went in, as was his custom, on three-day Sabbath, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving what was necessary for the Christ. Again, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, for the Hebrew Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. So sometimes God will open doors for you to go and do that in a, in a place where there are many people gathered for a, religious, for a religious meeting. But I assume that in most of your cases, it's not going to be that. 
Probably in most of your cases, it's not going to be that. But you have to learn to use the different methods that God is giving to you. For example, sometimes Paul would engage the philosophers. Some of you are like philosophy. You know, they like, you like to read Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, Kierkegaard, Kant, uh, C.S. Lewis, and you love that. And you know what? There are unbelievers out there who love to talk philosophy. Maybe that's your MO. Not every, that's not everybody's gift. But Paul, sometimes he went to the synagogue, and then look what he did. This is in Acts 17. Uh, starting in verse 16, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked uh, within him as he saw the city full of idols. So look what he does. He first goes to the synagogue, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, but then he went to the marketplace. And then in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So who were there? The Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. The Epicureans were followers of Epicurus, who said... The best thing to do is to, to get a tranquil life, absent of pain and fear, and uh, uh, maximize pleasure and minimize pain. If you arrive that, what do you think will happen? What do you think will happen if you're in your life, you can maximize pleasure and minimize pain? Do you think you'll be fulfilled? No, Epicurus says you'll be bored. What about if you try to maximize pleasure and minimize pain and never get there, what's gonna happen? You're going to be frustrated eternally, perpetually, because you're never gonna, uh, we can never arrive at it. Now, why would you follow that? And Paul is arguing and uh, he's conversing with these people who are looking for this type of tranquil life. And he's preaching to them that the tranquil life, the really peaceful life, can only come to the Prince of Peace, which is Jesus Christ. Do you think they accepted that message? No, they made fun of him. Why did this babbler wish to say but nevertheless, he engaged them, and he talked to them, he conversed with them. And then, what does this babbler wish to say? He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Most people made fun of him. Some said, um, we're going to hear you later. But if you read the text, you know what happened? Some believed. Some believe. Listen, our job is not to convince people. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to tell them. That's our job, is to be witnesses. We are not called to be lawyers. We are not called to be judges. We are called to be witnesses and to tell them what Jesus has done. And sometimes, you know what, did, what Paul did? He shared his testimony. Maybe you cannot engage C.S. Lewis and Aquinas and all these philosophers, but here's what you can say. I was blind, but now I see. Let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. If you have a testimony, that's powerful enough, and maybe that's all you need to do. If you have a, a friend, or a neighbor, or family member that maybe uh, is addicted to something, you can say, I was addicted to sin. But here's what Jesus did in my life. I was blind by now. See, that's what he does. This is not in chapter 9. In chapter 9, we are told how he came to Christ, how God appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And then in chapter 22, he's actually sharing the gospel. He says, brothers and fathers, here's the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew. See, he identifies with them. 
born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. I persecuted the way. See, he's talking about how he was before Christ. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivered to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received the letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who were them and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. You don't need a PhD to do that. You don't need a college degree. You don't need a master's degree. All you have to do is tell them, Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. This is what was before Jesus. This is what he did. And this is what's happening now. That's all you have to do. Can God use your testimony for someone's salvation? A couple of weeks ago, I was having dinner with David. David spent 25 years in prison for murder and arson. And I wanted to meet with him because I heard about his testimony. Do you know how he came to Christ? He was in prison. He opened the Bible. And what passage do you think was instrumental for his salvation? Acts chapter 9. When Paul comes to Christ, it was Paul's testimony that led David in prison to Christ. What? Can that happen to you? Yes, God can use your story for someone to become a believer. Remember, it's This is where the power is. It's what Christ does through his word. That's where the power is. So use the words of scripture. And we need to learn from Paul to use different methods. Not everybody will will come and listen to a sermon, but maybe they will come engage you in a conversation. Everybody, Everybody likes a cup of coffee or tea, right? Or if they don't like coffee, their members what? Al Qaeda? I don't know. I don't know who doesn't like coffee. I don't know. I'm not making a judgment. I'm, I'm just a witness. Also, we need to learn from Paul that Paul persevered through persecutions. We also need to persevere. We need to understand that being a disciple maker is not a walk in the park. We will get persecutions. Listen to what Paul got. He got imprisonments, beatings, stonings, threats. In 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me of his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. He, he was beaten. 2 Corinthians 11.24-25, he, he describes the physical abuse that he got. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Sometimes he was stoned to death. They, they thought he was dead. In Acts 14, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And then sometimes they threatened his life. They threatened to kill him. Acts 23, 12 and 13. When he was dead, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. 
There are more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And yet, in spite of all these, Paul perseveres. And we need to learn, my dear brothers and sisters, to persevere. You know, sometimes we, we, whenever someone opposes us, always we, we back up. Listen, opposition is not a sign that you're doing something wrong. Opposition could be a sign that you're doing something right. Learn from Paul to endure all these things. We need to learn from Paul to be team players. Paul always collaborated with other believers. <clears throat> I remember what my tennis coach told me in, in high school. There is no I in team. I kept reminding him there's I in winner. <clears throat> yeah, don't learn from me, learn from Paul. He collaborated with other believers. In, in Galatians 2.9, he describes a meeting with uh, James and Peter and John, and they said, hey, we know God is calling us to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and he collaborates with them to spread the gospel message. If you, so, some of our students complain that, you know, when they get those uh, group projects, don't raise your hands. I know those of you who are in school hate those group projects, right? Your professors know, you know, how much you love those but it's a good thing because you need to learn how to work with people that are not like you. You need to learn how to work in groups. You need to learn how to work in a team. And it's not just in a Christian environment. It's in any environment. We need to learn how to be a team player. He cooperated not just with other believers, but with other churches. He worked in Acts 18. He worked closely with Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple who was already active in the Christian community in Corinth. Sometimes he, you know, he was not fully funded by other churches, so he had to work a part-time job to be a tent maker. Then the church, the church paid for some of his ministry, and then he worked for the other. But he was a team player, and he persevered and rejoiced in spite of suffering. Notice, please, it doesn't just say, I grinned and I bared it, right? It doesn't say grin and bear it. He says, I rejoice. Wow, sometimes when we think about Paul in prison, we, we think about him, you know, with his head down and, uh, uh, you know, sad. And, but that's not what the picture we get in the Bible. It says, now I rejoice. He's writing Colossians from prison in Rome. And he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. For your sake. He talks about the church. You might expect Paul to say, I rejoiced when I preached before Caesar, but he doesn't say that. He, he doesn't say, I rejoiced when I preached in downtown Athens. He doesn't say, I rejoiced when I preached in the Corinthian synagogue, but when he's in prison, says, now I rejoice. Now I rejoice. And we need to learn how to rejoice in spite of suffering because we're not suffering for ourselves. He says, I rejoice because I suffer for your sake. By the way, Paul did not plan the church in Colossae. And yet he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He never visited the church. It's not a church that he knew personally, but he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. As John Newton says, John Newton, the, the author of Amazing Grace, says, God appoints his ministers to be sorely exercised both from without and from within. Why? That they may sympathize with their flock and know in their own hearts the deceitfulness of sin, the infirmities of the flesh, 
and the way in which the Lord supports and bears all who trust in him. We need to learn from Paul to not just suffer, but to rejoice in that suffering because it's for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And our responsibility, like Paul, is to make, of the, to make the word of God fully known. Notice what he says. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. In other words, Paul didn't wake up one morning and said, oh, I think today I'm going to become a minister of the gospel. That's not what happened. It was a clear call on his life. When God is calling you to something like that, it's very clear. You will not be surprised. You will not be confused. The stewardship to make the word of God fully known, Paul says, was given to me. Actually, after he became a believer in Acts 9.15, after God appears to him, uh, God says to Ananias about Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that's what Paul became. And that's what our job is. If we are to follow Paul, who follows Christ, we need to make the word of God fully known to people who we're ministering to. When he summarizes his ministry in Ephesus, Paul says, therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, for I, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Be grateful for pastors who preach to you the whole counsel of God. If you go to a church where they practice supermarket theology, they pick from here and they pick from here and they pick from here, that's not the whole counsel of God. That's why you gotta, I love it when pastors preach through books because you cannot avoid the tough subjects. You gotta go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and cover everything the Bible says. Because that's our responsibility too, to make the word of God fully known. To reveal the mystery. This is an interesting uh, event. What's, what's so mysterious about the gospel? Well, I'm here to tell you there's no more mystery. Listen to what the Bible says. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but now is disclosed to the saints. There is no more mystery. The mystery has been disclosed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, the word mystery was used uh, by different sects and cults in the plural. Uh, in the Greek world, the term mystery was used in the plural. Mysteries to denote the secret rites of pagan cults that were only revealed to the initiates. But in the New Testament, the word denotes a revealed secret, a truth formerly not known to men, but now revealed by God through Jesus Christ. There is no more mystery. The mystery has been revealed. And verse 27 says how? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. It's being revealed. There is no more mystery. It's being revealed. And we have to reveal that mystery to the people who don't know it yet. And that mystery is to proclaim him, to proclaim Jesus Christ. That's why he says, him we proclaim. See, uh, Paul here is so wants to focus on Christ that he changes the word order. He, he doesn't put the subject first and then the verb and then the object. He, he doesn't say we proclaim him. He says him we proclaim. He wants to emphasize him we proclaim. 
In a world that's dying in darkness, we need to proclaim that Jesus is the light of the world. In a world that's hungry for truth, we need to tell them that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus can still save. And that's the good news of the, the gospel. Him we proclaim. To the Corinthians, he writes, I deliver to you as first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel message. Have you ever heard people who talk about gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that, and when you read it, you don't know what they said? They use the word gospel kind of like a code word. I'm here to tell you there's no code word. When Paul talks about the gospel, he talks about Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. That's the gospel message. There is no mystery. There is no code. It's very clear what it is. Him we proclaim. To the Galatians, he writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the good news. That is the gospel. Jesus Christ died and rose again for us. Do you see why Paul is passionate? That's what he says. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. My dear brothers and sisters, I want us to understand that if we love Jesus, we will toil and we will struggle to present him to everybody. Kierkegaard was asked, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, so what's the problem with Europe at the time when he was writing? And he said, you know, the problem with Europe is mediocrity. Mediocrity. He said, what Christians need to be is to be passionately in love with their beloved. That's what it means to be a Christian. So let me ask you, how passionately in love are you with Jesus? Do you toil? Do you struggle to present Jesus to the world? This, look, look at the, ver, the, the verbs he is using. I toil. <clears throat> that verb is used by Peter in Luke 5 when he fishes all night and he doesn't catch anything. By the way, that's why I don't go fishing. <laughs> I've been fishing one time, the, the most boring four hours of my life. <laughs> Peter says, Master, we worked hard. That's the verb. We toiled all night and we didn't catch anything. Struggling, that verse is used uh, in 1 Corinthians. By the way, in, uh, in Greek is the word agonizomai from where we have the verb to agonize. So think about that. I toil, I agonize. Uh, it's used of athletes who agonize in the games, going into strict training. It's used by Jesus when he says, strive to enter the narrow door. Agonize to enter to the narrow door. It's used of Epaphras, who's agonizing in prayer. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling, agonizing, on your behalf in prayer that you may stand mature and fully assured of the will of God. Let me ask us, how deeply are we in love with our beloved? How deeply are we in love with our beloved that we can't wait to tell people 
who he is and what he has done. The Dutch painter Rembrandt, this is how he imagines uh, the Apostle Paul in prison. Is that the picture that we read in Colossians? He says what? I rejoice. He didn't catch that. He imagines Paul in prison, all this sad and lonely. That's, that's not what he says. I'm there and I rejoice. And I agonize and I struggle. Why? For you. For your sake. If he could write anything, I think he would write the verses of this old hymn. It says, make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, make me a servant, make me a servant, make me a servant today. Help me to be passionately in love with you. To obey the great commandment, the great commission, and the great commandment. To go and to make disciples. Amen. Let's stand and sing this old hymn together. I surrender all thanks to Ryan for helping me. Uh, let's sing it uh, together.
Dear Father, that is our prayer. Our prayer is that we will indeed follow Paul who is following you. Help us to obey the great commandment and the great commission to love you, to love our neighbors, but then to go, to make disciples of all nations. For your sake, for the sake of the church, and especially for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.